the Book of Esther, and the Fingerprints of God. This month, we're looking at the story of Esther. It's one of the most um, interesting and dramatic stories in the Bible. So let me start by giving you a quick overview. And as you listen to this story, I want you to ask yourself, what is missing here? And by the way, you don't need to know the story to guess what is missing. Uh, the story took place about a hundred years after the Jewish exile to Babylon. Uh, some of the Jews like Ezra and Nehemiah had already begun to return to their homeland to begin the rebuilding work in Jerusalem. But there were many more Jews who were scattered across the Middle East, including the two main characters of our story, Esther and her cousin Mordecai, who was more like an uncle, uh, raising her as his daughter since both her parents were dead. And they lived in Susa, which is in modern day Iran, and was one of the capitals of the Persian Empire. The Persians were the new world power, and their king, who I'll call by his Greek name Xerxes, was the most powerful man on earth. And he was also residing at Susa at his winter palace. So the story starts with him throwing this huge banquet for all of his officials to show off how great and glorious he was. And it lasted 180 days. That's how much he thought of himself. A six month party to the glory of his name. And then he hosted another week long banquet for the residents of Susa, at the end of which his wife, Queen Vashti, displeased him. And in a drunken rage, he banished her from the court. Well, the king then held a beauty pageant to choose a new queen. All the most beautiful virgins in the kingdom were brought to the palace, including Esther. And it was Esther who found the king's favor and was given the royal crown. Meanwhile, uncle Mordecai overheard a plot to assassinate the king and reported it to Queen Esther and so saved the king's life. And the event was recorded in the historical records, but no reward was given to Mordecai. Instead, the king promoted a man called Haman, whose descendants were enemies of the Jewish people. And he was given the highest place of authority, second only to the king. And everyone was commanded to bow down to him. But Mordecai refused to pay him homage and it enraged Haman. And so he made plans to eradicate not just Mordecai, but all of Mordecai's people, all the Jews that resided in the kingdom. And an edict was issued for their total destruction. Well, you can imagine there was great mourning among the Jews. So Mordecai told Esther to approach the king, plead with him for your people. But it meant risking her life because anyone who approached the king who had not been summoned would be put to death unless the king spared them by extending his golden scepter. But Mordecai told her, you know, you're going to die anyway. Who knows, he says, perhaps you've come to your royal position for such a time as this. So Esther got Mordecai and the other Jews around Susa to fast for her. And then she entered the king's presence and won his favor. In fact, he said to her, I'll give you whatever you request. And so Esther invited him and Haman to a banquet that she was preparing for them. And Haman was over the moon, but his joy was soon replaced with rage when he saw Mordecai at the palace gate still refusing to bow down to him. And so his wife and friends persuaded him to build a gallows for Mordecai's execution and get permission from the king in the morning to put him to death. Well, that very night, the king couldn't sleep 
And so he asked for his historical records to be read to him. And the section that just happened to be read was about Mordecai's discovery of the assassination plot. And the king realized that nothing had been done to reward Mordecai. So in the morning, when Haman arrived at the court, he asked him, what should be done for the man that the king wants to honor? And Haman, thinking that the king wanted to honor him, answered the question, but was shocked to discover the king actually wanted to honor Mordecai. And so Haman is humiliated as he's forced to publicly honor the very man he wanted dead for not honoring him. And this is where the whole story pivots as we see this ironic reversal of events. Esther told the king about Haman's despicable plot, revealing that she herself was a Jew, something that she kept hidden up until this point. And so the king was enraged when he realized what Haman had done, and he executed him on the very gallows that Haman had built for Mordecai. And meanwhile, it's Mordecai who's then promoted to Haman's position of authority, and the Jewish people are saved, and the story ends with another great banquet, this time for the Jewish people to celebrate their deliverance, and it's called the Feast of Purim. But it didn't last six months. It's actually still going on because it's celebrated every year to this day. What a dramatic story that is. Now, what was missing? Any guesses? It's the only book in the whole Bible where this is missing. You know what it is? It's the only book in the whole Bible where there's no mention of God, not one. There's no uh, thus saith the Lord or uh, the Lord sent an angel or spoke to someone in a dream or we don't find people praying to the sovereign God. Nothing. God is never mentioned. It's actually caused some to question whether this story belongs in the Bible at all. In fact, for the first centuries, the first seven centuries, I think, of the church, there wasn't one commentary written on Esther. But of course, just because we can't see God or hear God doesn't mean that God isn't there. Or that God isn't at work. In fact, I'm sure as you were listening to the story, you might well have been marveling at how God was working out his purposes on behalf of his people. His providence can actually be seen in every chapter of Esther. And I encourage you to read it for yourself. Uh, but you know, when we speak of God's providence, we mean that God in some uh, invisible way governs all creatures, all actions and circumstances through the normal and ordinary course of human history without the intervention of the miraculous. Karen Jobes in her commentary says this. She says the book of Esther is the most true to life biblical example of God's providence precisely because God seems absent. Even in the most pagan corner of the world, God is ruling all things to the benefit of his people and to the glory of his name. Just think of all the providential things that happened in the story, all the coincidences that took place, like the fact that the night before Mordecai was going to be sent to his death, the king couldn't sleep and has the chronicles read to him in which the record of Mordecai's good deed just happens to be read and sets into motion a series of events that leads to Haman's downfall and the salvation of the Jewish people. And so as it says in another commentary, uh, coincidences in Esther are the fingerprints of God's hands at work. God's name might not be mentioned. We don't see him or hear his voice, but his fingerprints are all over it working out the, his purposes for the good of his people. So let me just ask you this. 
When you look back over your life, can you see God's fingerprints? Are there uh, events or uh, timings or chance happenings in which you can see the providence of God at work? You know, I can remember when I was still searching for God as a young man, one of the things that really convinced me that God existed was those coincidences. You know, like I'd be reading a verse of scripture in the morning from a devotional book that someone gave me. And, and, and then in the evening at a meeting, someone might say, uh, I felt God wanted me to give you this verse of scripture. And it would be the exact same verse of scripture as I read in the morning. Did you know there's 31,102 verses in the Bible, but they gave me the very same one as I'd read earlier on, right? That kind of thing happened over and over again. I even had a journal where I kept a record. I didn't know God, but he was there drawing me to himself. It was in my first year of college that I put my faith in Jesus, but you know, it was God's providence I was there at all. Because in my last couple of years at high school, I didn't really work as hard as I might have done. I wasn't thinking about my future or a career. I was a punk, didn't think about much at all, right? So when everyone else was applying for college, I was late. I decided I, I wanted to study ancient history because that was the subject I liked the most, but I didn't get my application into college soon enough. And it meant waiting a year. So rather than kind of working full time, I decided to do a foundation year at art school. Well, it was there during that year that I met the guy whose witness led me to Christ. And it's where I also met Emma, who was to be my future wife. And without those two, I wouldn't be where I am today. It was a chance thing, but I can look back and I can see the fingerprints of God. Can you see that in your own life? You know, perhaps you believe in God, you put your trust in Jesus, but there are times in your life and circumstances when God seems distant, you know, when you're not hearing God, you don't feel his presence. Maybe you're not seeing his hand at work. There, there are prayers that are still un unanswered. And, and maybe even this week you've wondered, you know, where is God? We all go through times like that, you know, when God seems hidden. But what the story of Esther tells us is that even when we can't see God and we don't hear his voice, God is still at work because he has promised that he will never leave us or forsake us. And behind the scenes, he is constantly and often silently watching and working for your good and mine in ways we may never fully understand. As Mark Deva comments on the book of Esther, he says it's really just one long narrative illustration of Romans 8.28. And what does Romans 8.28 tell us? It says, we know that in all things, right, in all things, even when our circumstances are saying otherwise, even when uh, things seem tough or, or even impossible, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Right? God is constantly watching and working for your good and mine. That's what we see in Esther. So will you trust him today? Whatever your situation, give it to God and trust him with it. But he's not just working for our good, but also to accomplish his purpose, which is to redeem a people for himself. And, and God's purposes cannot be thwarted. Esther's first readers needed to be reminded of that. But it's something that God's people need to be reminded of in our own day too. 
that no matter how powerful or how pagan a ruler or government seem to be, they can never ever thwart the purposes of God. I mean, just consider the context of Esther. She and others of God's people were living in exile in a pagan land. They were a religious minority living in a dominant culture that had completely different views to them on just about everything. What's more, they had an ancient enemy to contend with who was set on destroying them, wiping them out from the face of the earth. And he had favor of the most powerful man on earth, King Xerxes. And right at the outset of the story, we are asked to consider the power and the prominence of this great king who threw a 180-day party to celebrate himself. He ruled over a massive empire and his word was final. In fact, if you read the story, when he agreed to Haman's plot, he gave an edict sealed with his ring that could not be reversed. The fate of God's people had been sealed. Their future looked bleak. And yet by the end, everything has turned around. This is great reversal. It's Haman who's destroyed. Mordecai takes his place and now it's God's people who are throwing a party. That's when they came to realize, as we will all realize one day, that this seemingly great and powerful king, along with every other king and ruler and power on earth, was just a puppet in the hands of one who has no rival, who has no equal, who never has been, never will be threatened or thwarted. He is the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. He rules over the whole universe, over the King of Persia, over every other earthly authority. They have no comparison to him. As Abraham Kuyper once declared, he says, there's not one square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Listen, no matter how dark things may appear at times, no matter who is in charge where we live or who wins the elections and sits in power in this country, no matter what the enemy of our souls is plotting or what edicts get passed, we can sleep peacefully because we know that the Lord reigns. Can you say that with me? The Lord reigns. I heard a story this past week that was told by Ronald Boyd McMillan, who's a modern researcher of persecution. He says he was in Beijing meeting secretly with three elderly Chinese Christians, and he was rather shocked when they offered a toast to Mao Zedong in the memory of a man who did more than any other to bring to our beloved China the largest scale revival in the history of Christianity to Mao Zedong. And then they explained, they said he closed the churches jailed the pastors, burned the Bibles, annihilated the visible church, and many Christians died. It was a terrible time. But after Mao's death, the few evangelists that were left began to go and preach the gospel in the countryside. And those who heard the gospel realized that Mao could not save them because he died. But Jesus, who rose from the dead and lives, is the true savior. And Boyd McMillan says, we all laughed. We almost felt sorry for Mao, he says, doing his worst to finish off the church and all the while laying the foundation for the biggest revival in the history of Christianity. Listen, the Lord reigns. His purposes cannot be thwarted. Jesus is building his church and the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. We may despair of the church in our own country, 
how weak or how compromised she may appear to be. We might worry about liberalism or nominalism or Christian nationalism. You know, we might get upset about the politicization of the church and the division that it brings. But the thing that we've got to keep reminding ourselves of is that Jesus is Lord and his purposes cannot be thwarted. The Lord reigns and he's building his church. And rather than criticizing the church and, and pointing out all her obvious failings, we need to remember Jesus is redeeming for himself a people, a bride who will be radiant, pure and spotless. And unlike the king of Persia, he's not holding a beauty pageant to find them. Right? He's not looking for the pure and the beautiful. Rather, he seeks those who are spiritually flawed and wretched, who have no inherent beauty in them. He takes hold of people like you and me, and he washes us clean. He makes us pure and gives us his beauty. That's what he did for us on the cross. It's through the cross that we see the greatest reversal of all. Right? It's where the enemy, who seemed to have succeeded in his despicable plot to have Jesus put to death, but Jesus overcame death and rose victorious. He turned the tables on the powers of darkness and so determined their ultimate destruction and the eradication of all that is evil in the new heavens and new earth. Jesus is the one who was promoted to the highest place and is at the right hand of the Father. Whereas it says in Ephesians 1.21, he is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And one day it will be Jesus who will be hosting the greatest banquet of all to the glory of his name, a great and magnificent wedding feast and how we will all celebrate with him on that day. So listen. Please don't despair at what is going on in the world or what is happening in your own life. Put your trust in Jesus, right? You may not always see him or hear his voice, but he is working for your good and mine, and he is accomplishing his purposes on earth. You are in the greatest story of all. It's a story that has already pivoted at the cross. The great reversal has already happened, and the outcome is certain. So sleep in peace. But let's also, let's go and share the good news, right? God reigns. The Lord reigns. God bless you as you declare that this week.